Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, well, let's keep going here and uh, hopefully finish this up. All right. Um, Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which is within me. Therefore, whether I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Just a little aside there, Paul says, you know, I saw the risen Lord too, and I was one born out of due time. The idea there is he was a premature birth. The idea there, he wasn't born at the right time. He was born out of out of the sort of at the wrong time. And Paul saw himself as the least of all the apostles. He didn't see it, you know. And that's one of the things to, um, you know, that really marked the apostles. They weren't they weren't competing with one another. There was no competition there. Um, they all served the Lord. And Paul says, you know, when I look at my life and when I look at you know, what I've done, I consider myself the least. Now, how would we consider Paul? Probably one of the greatest, right? I mean, he certainly, if, if the only one you could probably put ahead of Paul would maybe be Peter. But, but Paul was certainly the greatest. But see, he didn't see himself as that. And that's one of the things about the grace of God. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that I've noticed in my years of Christ, being a Christian is we like to do a lot of comparison. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm more spiritual than that person over there. I, I'm more this or I'm more that, or they're not as godly as I am. And we do a lot of this comparison kind of stuff, and really that that's that's an invalid, prideful way of looking at things. Um, I remember a man telling me that the only person that taught better in this church than him was me, and I. Remember that as I was, I was as, it's one of those things when he said it, I was so shocked I didn't know what to say in return. You know, it's how, how do you respond? But it's like, what kind of statement is that? I mean, he meant it as a compliment, I guess, but but the whole point is like, you don't go comparing yourself. You know, and Paul says, I'm the least of all, I was born out of due time, you know, but yet I, I worked, but not I, but God worked in me. He was born at not the right time. He was sort of like, like I said, it was a premature or late birth. And usually if you have premature or late births, they're dead, right? Babies don't live. And Paul saw himself as, a, as a, almost a, he saw himself as born, born at an unnatural time. That's sort of what he's trying to get at there. Born again. He was saved. But when he's talking about like the disciples, you know, the, the 12 apostles, they were chosen and they were ministered with Christ. And Paul was persecuting the church at that time. He was against Christ and against everything. And, and he was sort of like at, at the tail end, God brought him in. And so like Paul looking around saying, well, what am I doing with these guys? You know, what? why am I here? And and you know what? I Just as I think that's the way we all need to view our ministry whatever ministry we find ourselves in, instead of looking around saying, well, why in the world is God using that person? Ask yourself, why is God using me? 
You know, um, I've had a lot of people say, I don't understand how God can bless that man. And my response is, well, how can God bless you? <laughs> you know, that's not the question to be asking. The question to be asking is, why you? Why has God chosen you? Why are you? Why do you have a ministry? And that's how Paul saw himself there. Do you think that it ties into knowing where he came from, that he was a persecutor of the church? Yeah. And Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. That's an interesting word. Chief there means protos. Protos is first. And Paul says, okay, if you take all the people in the world and line them up from worst sinner to best, I'm the worst. That's how he viewed himself. See, see, one of our problems as Christians, you know, if somebody says, okay, rate your, rate your, rate your spirituality on a scale of one to a hundred, where do most people place themselves? A little higher, probably a lot higher than they ought to, right? Right? We all do, don't we? We cut ourselves a lot of slack, don't we? We think all of us in here probably view ourselves as more godly than we really are. And one of the things that we need to do as believers is understand just how unrighteous and ungodly and, and how far fall far we fall short of God's standard. Because only then can God really work. And we're going to find that in Second Corinthians, where Paul writes, we have this treasure in a clay pot. If you have a million dollars in a clay pot, why is the pot valuable? The contents. Why are we valuable? The contents. It's not us. It's God in us. And Paul saw himself as that. He did not. He had a proper self-image. And don't let these psycho ceramics crackpot people come around Christian psychologists and say, well, you need to have a healthy, healthy self-image. You know, well, I'll tell you what, well, you know, Paul would have been in therapy, right? Because what was his image of himself? The worst of all sinners, the chief among sinners. He says, I am the off-scouring of the world. What's the off-scouring? Well, that's, you know, when you clean a dirty, cruddy pot off, that's all the crud that comes off of it. Paul says, see myself as, I see myself as the crud. That's how I view myself. And we say, well, you know, he really needs some serious therapy. You know, he's got a very poor self-image, you know. Well, his self-image was wrapped up in who, who he was in Christ, not in his own innate goodness and wonderfulness and things like that. And that's how Paul viewed himself. And then he gets back to the, the, the issue of resurrection. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? This is the point. This is going right at the question they were asking. Because they have been influenced by the philosophical dualism of the day. Matter is evil, spirit is good. That's in distinction to monism, where everything is of the same substance. That's not what was taught here. Matter is evil, spirit is good. The goal is to rid yourself of the physical limitations. And so having, been, having that permeated philosophically into them, one of the greatest struggles they had as Christians is how is it that we would want a resurrection? I mean, who wants to come back into a physical limitation? And that was what they were thinking. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, verse 13, of the dead, then Christ is not risen. What's that? That's an axiomatic truth, right? 
If there's no resurrection, then by definition, Christ could not be resurrected. Right? So Christ is still dead, right? That's, that's what he's trying to get at. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. What's that? Vain, empty, futile. If Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is meaningless. Because what is the goal of redemption is the salvation of all of us. Not just our soul, but our soul, spirit, body, every that immaterial, material part of us. The goal of redemption is resurrection, eternal life. And Paul is saying, you know what? If Christ is not raised from the dead, where is he? He's still in the tomb. And all those promises he said about being risen from the dead, they're all lies, which means what? He's not divine because he didn't keep his word. All of Christianity crumbles if Christ is not raised from the dead. And you cannot believe, and, and, and you know, don't fall into this well. I, I believe he rose from the dead in the spiritual sense. No, no, no. It's a physical <laughs> resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. In his resurrection body? Yes. His resur Christ's resurrection body, there's a material component of that. How that works out, what's his exact substance or atomic structure, or whatever, I don't know. But there's a physicality to it. He can be touched. He's solid. He's not a, a ghost. He's not a spirit being. And that's what our resurrection body Yes. Is. Yes. And our resurrection bodies will not be subject to the physical limitations we have now. They will be of a different nature. Did it imply a 100% man, 100% God, right? Yeah. That's why the team. Yeah. Christ came into the world as a man to die as a man. He was risen again, showing that man can conquer death. That was necessary. Resurrection is a necessary, critical component of our saving faith. Without it, we are wasting our time. We just go home and forget about the rest of our class. You know, that's that's really what it's saying there. Christ is not risen from the dead. Don't go to church. Go play golf. Do whatever you want to do on Sunday morning. Forget about this whole religion thing because it's, it's meaningless. And yes, verse 15, we are found false witnesses of God because we testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. In other words, Paul is saying, then we're all liars. The ones of us who said we saw him, we made it up. We're lying to you. We're false witnesses. The 500, liars. Cephas, he's a liar. James, he's a liar. I'm a liar. If there's no resurrection, I'm a liar. I'm a false witness. Our faith is vain. Our religion is vain. We have no hope. For if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, vain. You're still in your sins. What, what validated Christ's conquering of death? Okay. Now, now something. The wages of sin is what? Death. So we would expect anybody who's a sinner to die, right? Now Christ came, rose again from the dead. What does that say about it? There's no sinner, right? Because if he was a sinner, he would stay dead. Which means he was not a sinner, which validates his claim to deity. And in fact, in Romans, the, the picture there is that in in a mystical sense, when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ was buried, 
we were buried with him. And when Christ rose again, we rose again with him. We are in Christ. That's what it means to be baptized in Romans 6. We are baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism there being a word for identification. So when Christ rose again from the dead, I rose again from the dead with him. And then the point Paul makes in Romans 7, is using marriage, is a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, right? Axiomatic truth. Forget 1 Corinthians 7. All right, in the perfect sense, when a woman and woman and man, a man and woman are married, Paul's using the, the the woman there is the it's really for both. As long as her husband is alive, she's bound to her husband in marriage. But if her husband dies, she is free. We were bound to the law. And then what happened? We died. Who did we die with? Christ. So when we died with Christ, what happened to the mastery of sin over us? It's gone. And we rose again in newness of life. And what is the wages of sin? The wages of sin is death. Did we die? Yeah, I died with Christ, right? But now that I'm risen again, does death have any more claim over me? No, because its claim was what? Yeah. It's sort of like the Old West, right? If you were hanged and the rope broke, you were free, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we died. It's spiritual and physical, but we died with Christ. That's the point Paul's making. We died with Christ in his death. We were buried with him. We risen. We rose again with him. That's the picture of Romans um, six and seven. We rose again with him. Spiritually, we died with Christ. Spiritually, we were buried. Spiritually, we rose again. All right. And our physical resurrection is only a reflection of our spiritual resurrection. But both are necessary. And Christ being risen again from the dead was the validator on his message. And it was the validation that God accepted his sacrifice. If Christ, if God did not, if God the Father did not accept Christ's sacrifice on the cross, where would Christ be? In the tomb. He's not in the tomb. What does that say about God's acceptance of the sacrifice? He accepted it. It's finished. And that is why the the resurrection is such a critical component of the gospel message. You can't omit it. And you can't say, well, I don't believe in the physical resurrection business, but I, I believe Jesus died for me. Well, you know, you, that's not good enough. That doesn't, do you any good. doesn't do you any good, right? And he says, your faith is real, and you're still in what? Your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have what? They're dead. No resurrection. They're dead. They're gone. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most... Pity, right? We're the most miserable. If 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 all if only our hope is in this life, we have no hope of resurrection, no hope of eternal life. Why go through what we're going through, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. The whole point that Paul is making here, resurrection, he's making this argument to the to the Corinthians. Don't fall into the philosophical dualism argument that matter is evil, spirit is good. If Christ is not raised again from the dead, your faith is futile. It's meaningless. Christ is a liar. 
We are liars. You're still in your sin. God did not accept the sacrifice of Christ. It is not efficacious. You are still dead in your sins. And you are to be pitied. Of all men, you're the most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's the first fruits? Well, he's using the imagery here of a harvest. Now, I'm not a farmer. The only things I grow are by accident and also weeds. Um, the only successful tomato plant I had, I remember this, the only successful tomato plant I ever had, we got in a, a, a flat of flowers. I didn't even know it was a tomato plant. And, I plant, and that thing took over the front walk in our house. We had tomatoes into the middle of November. I was pulling tomatoes off of that thing. And it was an accident. It was pure accident. And then I try to grow a tomato and the things die. You know, I just... The whole point here is Paul's using the imagery here of a harvest. Now, John, his brother's a farmer. All right. And what you have in, in, when you harvest things, you have the first fruits. That's the first part of the crop. All right. And then there's usually after the first fruits, the period of time, then you have the main harvest. That's when you bring in the most of the crop. And then there's a few little things that are straggled over. That's the last gleanings, they call it. Okay, and that's the imagery Paul is using here. Christ was resurrected from the dead. And he became the first fruits. And in Matthew 28, it says not only did Christ rise again from the dead, but there were some others that rose with him. All right, that walked the streets of Jerusalem and appeared. You know, um, so Christ was the first fruits. Okay, now here's the question: What do the first fruits? Theologically in the Bible, what are the first fruits? What's the importance of the first fruits? Why? Why did God want the first fruits? That's the best. And why else did God want the first fruits? Yeah, because you trusted that if I give him the first fruits, the main harvest is good as well. Yeah. It had to do. There was a dual aspect to it. Number one, you give God the best, the first, and 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 you and by doing so, you are saying, "I trust you for the rest of the harvest." All right, I trust you that I'll get the rest of it because I'm going to give you the first away. And that's and and, and what is it? Sort of like the the first fruits are the the promise or the down payment of the harvest to come later. So in the sense, Christ the being resurrected from the dead is a validator. Right, that there's going to be another harvest because the first fruits came in. We've got another har main harvest coming. Isn't All right, just like open door. Yeah. yeah open door, <laughs> and then we follow. He opened door for, for us. First. Yes. We, 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 we follow we, in. Yes. Um, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, to really understand that, you've got to go and exegete Romans 5. Every person in the world is identified with one of two beings. You're identified with Adam in death. Or you're identified with Christ in life. In Adam, all die. In Christ, you're all made alive. Who are you identified with? All right. And that, goes, that carries right into Romans 6, the identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so everyone is identified in Adam. Adam signifies death, Christ life. In Adam, all die, and Christ, all are made alive. 
but each one in his own order. Now, there's just an order to this first resurrection. Christ, the first fruits, that's the first part of the, the resurrection. That, when did that happen? Well, that happened when Christ rose again from the dead. There was a, a mini resurrection at that time. And that was the first fruits. All right, Christ being one of those. Then afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. When does that happen? Well, that's when Christ comes again. That's prior. That's the rapture, the main harvest. And then it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under feet. The last enemy that we destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, what's, what's it saying here? Saying all things are under Christ except what? Yeah. God the Father, because God the Father is not the one that can be put under Christ. That's the way it's going out there. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject, subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. Theologically, what this is saying is that, is that there comes a point when everything in the universe is going to be placed under Christ. And when that happens, what is Christ going to do? Going to give all over to the Father. And that's the eternal state. All right. So what you have here is you have three parts to this resurrection. Christ, the first fruits, the main harvest, and then what? Right at the end. All right. Right at the end. What's the end? Theologically, eschatologically, what is the end? The end of the millennium. The end of the millennium. Okay. Now, at the end of the millennium, you have a resurrection, right? Now, is everybody resurrected at the end of the millennium? Is that is all of them resurrected to the second death? Is that all the second resurrection? Yeah, because there are, there are people that were redeemed living at the end of the millennium. When do they get resurrected? At the end of the millennium. And remember, at the great white throne, what is the statement? If their name is not found written in the book of life. So what does that seem to imply? That not all of them have their name omitted from the book of life. Did you follow it? No, I didn't follow that. Great white throne, all the dead stand before God. The books were open. Another book is open. It's the book of life. They were judged out of things written in the book according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So the fact that whosoever was not found in the book of life would imply what? That some are found in the book of life. All right. That some are found there. All right. Because there, there is, unless you want to say that everybody that's alive during the millennium are all unbelievers, and there's no believers at all at the end of the millennium, I don't think you want to go there. There's a lot that aren't, right? Remember they come and surround Jerusalem as the sand cover the seashore. So there's a lot that rebel, but not everybody rebels. Well, let's back up a little bit. going too fast. Going too fast. All right. Slow down. Slow down. When we were reading this at home, there's the rapture. We understand that's... Either post tribulation or whatever. Whatever it is. But then Christ, when we have Armageddon, Christ wins and he establishes his kingdom on earth for the millennium. Right. right? Uh, people are going to die during, there's death during the millennium? Yes, yeah. there is. Okay, that's, that's where. We You're going to be pretty old. 
but people still die. So these are people who were alive during who survived tribulation. Yes, they're alive. They, yeah, and they will they enter the millennium. Judgment seat, right? Yeah, judgment seat of Christ. Yeah. This is not judgment seat of Christ. That's for the believers. The sheep goat judgment of Matthew 25 is where God separates the sheep from the goats. The goats go into hell. The sheep do what? They enter the kingdom. Okay, but okay, but so but if God establishes the millennium kingdom, yeah, there's still death and sin. Yeah, he hasn't yet Christ hasn't yet conquered death for those people in the millennium. Is that right? Let me let me explain. Let me get on my little chart and I'll explain it. All right, the first resurrection has three parts. Resurrection 1A is the first fruits. When did that happen? Yeah, at, at, at the resurrection. All right. And then we have what I believe here, scripturally, you have something called the rapture of the church. What happens there? That's the main harvest. Okay. So that's resurrection 1B. Okay. That's the main harvest. That's only the resurrection of believers. Okay, and the reason I'm splitting this up into one is there's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. All right. Resurrection implies what? What does resurrection imply? You were dead, now you're resurrected. Okay, keep that in mind because that will help you sort this out. All right. And then you have Christ comes back at the end of the rapture, and many think that that is a... A 1B sub 1 <laughs> and a 1B sub 2 where, where there, there's Christ at his coming, there's going to be a resurrection. And this is the Old Testament saints. This is probably mentioned in Daniel 12. Okay. Daniel 12 mentions this. Okay. And the rapture passage is um, 1 Thessalonians 4 mentions that one. Okay. So this is the main harvest. This is when the bulk of people are raised again from the dead. All right. And then at the end, if you want to think about it, at the end of the millennium, all right, for the eternal state, you have the last gleanings. And that's what he's talking about when at the time of the end. Well, what's the time of the end? Well, he's saying, well, when death is put under Christ and he turns everything over to the Father, when does that happen? Well, that's going to happen at the end of the millennium because who's, who's the ruler in the millennium? Jesus is. He hasn't yet subjected everything to the Father, and death is not yet subject because people still die. Okay, So that's not yet, but that's going to be. So now you've got the last gleanings. All right. So that's the first resurrection. What do you have? You have three parts. Christ the first fruits, main harvests, last gleanings, just before he delivers everything over to the Father. Explain the Old Testament saints in 1B um, and 1C. The Old Testament saints, if you read Daniel chapter 12, when Christ comes to establish his kingdom, immediately prior to the physical establishment of the kingdom, there is a resurrection of the Old Testament saints. Okay. And that's where they would fit in. And that's 1C you call that? Or 1B. One one this is, yeah, there's, there's like two parts to this Christ coming. Rose the same saints that rose at the day that Christ no, rose? No, not the same ones. They're different ones. Different ones. So they're part of the first fruits. So. But they're part, they're part of the... There's some that were at the first fruits. And then most of the Old Testament saints are going to be here. Who got the, this one? Who, the Bible doesn't fill in all those little details. All right. The unbelievers, the unbelievers now... Now the unbelievers are resurrected 
here. The unbelievers. The unbelievers. They're resurrected at the end of the millennium. And the dead judgment, like they go to hell. Or yes. They go to hell. Yeah. What type of, I'm sorry, Jamie. What type of resurrection do the unbelievers experience, though? A physical resurrection. Okay. Yeah. And then spiritual death. Yeah. Physical. They will go into hell in a physical body that is suited to the torments of whatever they will face. So when when is uh, dead people raised up? When? It depends on which group you're talking about. They already die, right? Died people in the ground, right? Physically, right? Believers. And right now, any any believer that's people dead. Died people there, yeah. People. Right now, right now, okay, I'll, I'll answer. if you're a believer, you're going to be resurrected either A, at the trap rapture if you're part of the church, or B, at the end of the tribulation if you're an Old Testament saint. So dead people, same thing, right? Yes. Yes. Or live people, still dead time, living people together, right? So just dead people. Are dead people and, and living people living together in the millennium? Yes. Right, the dead same time yeah, we're living in a difference. We're, we're ruling with Christ, right? Our part of our part of our. The Satan and unbelievers still live there that time. Satan is Satan is is bound in the in the bottomless pit. His demons are bound with him, so there's no demonic influence. Not outside, right? They in the in the game, right? They're in the bottomless pit. Yeah. The Abu Sas calls this. Yeah. Bible says, so they're not there, but. Anybody who enters the tribulation, or anybody who enters the millennium is going to be a believer. At the beginning of the millennium, you have all believers. Okay? Everybody there on earth living in a physical body will be a believer. You will, you will be alive in, a, in your current physical form in the millennium. And that, that population are the ones that will, their offspring are that which is going to populate and grow during the millennium. And fill the earth. So end of the millennium. At the end of the millennium, you have a final rebellion. Heaven, heaven and earth is gone, right? Yes. Gone and we go heavenly, right? Yeah. We go to the eternal state. So earth and heaven at the time. There's a new earth and heaven. He'll create a new one. A new heaven and new earth. Okay. People know they lived in the millennium time. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But your kids still won't believe you. You will know. You will know because Christ is going to rule. And we're going to rule with him. Okay? And he will be here, he will be here on earth in his glorified yeah. body. Yeah. There won't be any mistake on who's in charge. Yeah. James. Daniel 12, 2 talks about those that await to everlasting life and then those that also await to everlasting punishment. Yeah. Is that. 1B2, both of those groups? Or? No. you got to understand that, that, that the resurrection, it's refined as you go along. Early on, there's, there was not a concept of these different pieces. That came with, the, with Paul writing here, splitting it out and helping us understand that. Okay. In Daniel 12, it, it, there's a general statement that there's going to be some that will be a resurrected, some to life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It doesn't say when. Now, if you read that real quickly, you would think, well, it's at the same time. Just like when you read Isaiah, where it talks about, you know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to, you know, heal the brokenhearted and whatever and proclaim the supplicant of the Lord and the day of vengeance of God and all. And you think, oh, well, it's all one event. But we know that that's really two separate events because we're looking back at it. 
Okay. Um, you can study this more. I'm not making this up. All right. But all rectifying everybody you thought in the crowd. Yeah. Right. We're caught up. Yeah, they come. We come. We we are resurrected. We are caught up together with him. If Christ came back today, we would all go to meet him in the air, and we would be and we would be given a glorified body at that time, our resurrection body. Seven, seven, about somewhere around seven years later, we will return with Christ to establish His kingdom. What about the seven years? Can you explain? Three, three and a half and three and a half. Yeah, there's there, it's split in two parts: three and a half, three and a half years. And this is where God deals with Israel. There'll be a great revival. People will be born again during this time. What's the first three and a half? Or second three and a half? Could you explain? Once peaceful. Once peaceful. Once characterized basically by peace. The others by the judgments of God. All right. But I just so we're at, we're going to rule with Christ during the millennium. Yes. But it it seems odd to me that we're going to fail because there's going to be offspring who will go astray. Does that mean that there will be wars and? No, there won't be any wars. They will be suppressed. God, Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. But right at the end, Satan is loosed for a short time, and he's allowed to come out and deceive the nations, and he does. And what God, if you want to think about what God is basically, what is God really trying to say in all of this? Give mankind 1,000 years of a perfect environment. And what is the heart of man basically still like? Don't let the people say, well, you know, the problem is the environment. No, it's not the environment. The problem is the heart. The problem is the heart. That, that's where the problem lies. All right. And 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 there, and you know people will be alive at the time. They will obey the laws. They will do the, but they won't be saved. They won't be born again. They won't place a faith, saving faith in Christ. Some will, some won't. All right. And at the end, there's going to be a general rebellion. And then you have the one C, the last gleanings. They're they're raised again for eternal life. And then you've got the second resurrection, as mentioned in Revelation 20, where it talks about. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And everyone stood before God. And the great white throne, the books were open and they were judged. Out of those things written in the book. And then they were condemned to the eternal state. And to, to hell. Not hell, but to the lake of fire. Hell is temporary. Lake of fire is eternal. Satan. The judgment. For a while, until judgment, they're still alive. Yes. They are allowed to Satan alive. And then in judgment day, they put in the fire the lake. The lake of fire, yeah. Hades, Hades is temporary. And that's going to be put off into the lake of fire. That's, that's the eternal state. And the reason you have a final judgment is because this is when the clock stops. All right. Because God, for God to be perfectly, completely fair, right, not only are you responsible for the sin you've committed in life, but you're also responsible for your evil influence. Look at Saddam Hussein. Did the clock stop on him when he was hanged? No, his influence lives on. And if, Christ, if God is going to be perfectly fair, he is not only responsible for the evil he did in life, he's responsible for the influence that lives on even after his death. And and this is when the, when 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 the game is over and and it's like you know in the monopoly you know the game is over count up your money and who wins all right that's what happens here it's the end of time 
the books are open, and everything that you've done, all the influence that you, you the evil influence, whatever, that is all taken into account at that point. So Laroche has to say it differently. Uh, we got the uh, eternal life, the heavenly. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody say the different reward. In the first Corinthian or chapter what, four, five, master builder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the reward. Yeah, so what is our reward? Has to say every stage uh, of eternal life, but different reward. And, and uh, my understanding, no reward. Everybody's saying. Yeah, what I understand, this is the time of reward. This is the, our reward as believers is we rule and reign with Christ in different capacities, different, different modes of service. Part of my reward as a believer is I get to rule and reign with Christ. And some say, well, I'm going to rule and reign with Him in eternity. Over who? Everybody's perfect. Who are you going to reign over? For Revelation, say. A lot of elders serving, a lot of different uh, clothing where they worship them, you know, different angels there. Elders. We, we will worship elders. God in eternity. They still have elders there. That's the only metaphor. No, that, that's, during, that's during this time here. Only that time? Yeah. Right. Yeah, go, go to Revelation 20 and 20, well, 21 and 22, and, and what you see is a grand equality. You don't see rulers in heaven. All right. You don't. God walks among his people. Who are you going to rule over? There's no one to rule over. Everybody's perfect. This is all back here. This is all back in here. All right. In the eternal state, we're all in the eternal state. We're all equal. I mean, who are you going to reign over? Everybody's perfect. Nobody makes a mistake. Everybody has direct access to God. You're pure. You're holy. You're you're righteous. Our reward is going to be to rule and reign with Christ. No, no, not going to be affected by any of that. You know, when Satan is let out at the end of the millennium, the only one that he'll have an effect on will be unbelievers. He will not affect us at all. We don't need to. And that's a nice thing about. Yeah, there's a nice thing. When you when you are resurrected, there's no possibility of us blowing it in eternity. All right. Yeah. I'm just saying this. This is I'm 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 distilling this down very quickly, and I'm not really doing a good exegetical job of giving you all the passages in the scripture. But believe me, there are passages behind this. I'm not making it up. There are passages, and, and this is the one that fits the, all of the verses best. Okay. You do have two resurrections. And Paul's talking here about the first resurrection. There is a second resurrection of the ungodly who are given a physical body designed to endure the torments of the lake of fire for eternity. Yes. And they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. And by the way, don't let anybody tell you that that's annihilationism, that they're burned up and, that, you know, all that kind of stuff. The Bible clearly says they are in conscious torment forever. The smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, which means there will be a con Do you torment something that's dead? No. No. The fact that there is torment indicates there is conscious life for them. Yes. And that's going to And the greatest horror of the lake of fire is the abandonment of God. You're abandoned by God.
you know. Yeah, it, it is so horrible that we, we can't comprehend it. And so what Paul is saying here is there is several parts to this first resurrection. Okay. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? All right. <laughs> that is the toughest verse in the New Testament to interpret. All right. That is the toughest verse in the New Testament. Um, the Mormons will tell you this is why they're baptized for the dead. Why you got to do a genealogical study and find your great, great, great grandparents. So you can be baptized for him so he can reach the celestial heaven. All right. Yeah, that's now that's weird. All right. What does it mean to be? What does baptism basically mean? See, we we got we got see we got all this theological trappings on top of the word. What did the original word mean? Submerge. To submerge, to dip or submerge or wash. That's another one. Okay, to dip, submerge or wash. All right, this is Schaefer here. Okay, <laughs> but I think the best idea of this. Um, I mean. I, MacArthur disagrees with me, but that's that's fine. Um, yeah, there's a lot of when you die. If there is no resurrection of the body, what's what's the purpose of? How do I put? When somebody dies, what should you do? If there's no resurrection, no hope, what should you do with the body? Burn it, toss it out, whatever you know. Why do we, you know, wash it, dress it up, put a suit on it, respect it? What's that? There's a hope of resurrection. That's how I interpret this. All right. But you know what? There, I don't know what the orthodox. That's one of the questions you can ask God when you get to eternity. Uh, what you What you mean by that verse there? I don't know what you're talking about there. All right. It does not mean that we can be baptized on behalf of the dead and in some way have some um, efficacy for that, as the Mormons would tend to make us believe. But the point is, we respect the dead. The, the Jews respected the The Jews would not burn a body, right? They would bury the body. They would wrap it up and bury it in hopes of what? A resurrection. That's the whole point. And, and throughout the cultures of the world, most cultures... Look at the Egyptians. Why did they go to all of that rigmarole of embalming and, you know, you bury the guy with a boat and with money and with, well, well the hope is a resurrection. That's the point. Hold up. Who? Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees. Sadducees. Pharisees did and Sadducees did not. So people that are cremated today, we don't have a body. But some of them are saved. God's not going to have to worry about collecting their nuclear material. And quite honestly, what is the Bible? We're going to get to that in a few verses here, if we ever get to it, um, which says that the body that's buried is not like the body that's resurrected. Okay. okay. Verse 31, I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what man advantage is, is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat, drink, 
for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection of the dead, why am I being persecuted? Why am I preaching an unpopular gospel? Why am I going through all that grief I'm going through? If there's no hope of a resurrection, get a get a bottle of wine and have a good time because tomorrow you're dead. I mean, that's 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 the point is what it's saying here. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your same. Don't be like those who, who act as though there's no resurrection. And this is the point. All of us need to live in light of the fact that someday we're going to rise again from the dead. This life is not all we have. So let's not act as though it is. You know? Um, I don't want to sound macabre or anything like that, but, you know, we have, we have a, you know, in our family, you know, last two weeks ago, my brother-in-law died. All right. He was a Christian. He was a believer. And, you know, it was hard on the family. It was sad, you know, for that. But we had great hope and joy because he's not gone forever. And, you know, if he got to heaven and God said, you know, man, we made a mistake. You know, it wasn't you. It was the guy in the room next to you. We got the room numbers mixed up. You can go back. There's no way he'd come back. And after five minutes in heaven, there's no way we'd want to come back here either. All right. Northeast Ohio winter? No, I don't think so. Um, maybe maybe you come back as something other than an Indians fan or something. I'm joking, so, you know. But but the whole point there, Paul is saying, is if in this life only I have a hope in Christ, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I going through what I'm going through? Because I have nothing to look forward to. When I'm dead, I'm gone. But someone will say, well, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? See, that was the argument of those days. How foolish is it? You know, who wants to come back with this physical limitation? And Paul's saying, foolish one, you idiot. That, that's a Schaefer translation. You, know, you idiot. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body what will be. You sow just a seed. Perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and each one seed its own body. You can't look at a seed. Can you look at a seed and tell me what the plan is? No. By looking at the seed. You can only do that. Why? Because you plant seeds that look like that one, and it produces this plant. <laughs> but looking at a seed, you can't tell what is going to grow out of that. I mean, you can look at a, you know, at a tree seed. And it looks the same as some other vegetable seed. You don't know what it is unless you're a trained botanist. You don't know what's going to grow out of that. And Paul said the body that you plant in the ground is not at all like the body that's resurrected. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another fish, another birds. Is all physical flesh the same? No, it's not. Physiologically, there are different kinds of flesh. And he says there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. What's celestial body? Stars, moon. What's the terrestrial bodies? Physical things. He said they're different. There's variations. They're not all the same. Now, the Mormons will stomp on this and say, well, see, you have a telestial, a terrestrial, and a celestial resurrection. That's not what this is talking about here. Paul's trying to make a point. The point is there are varying degrees of glory. There are varying kinds of bodies out there. All right. So flesh will be still 
a different uh, flesh. Paul's so saying not all flesh. Huh? We're going to have a physical form. What that physical form is. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's just saying, as you look around, you have different kinds of animals, different kinds of flesh. No. The point he's trying to make is there's different kinds of flesh. There's different kinds of celestial bodies. You look at the heavens and one star is brighter than another. There's variations in it. Um, you look at bodies on the earth. There are variations. There, there's variations in all of that. They're all different. Only all right? Right? Only humans are resurrected. Okay, your dog is not resurrected. And then, and then he explains it. There's a glory of the sun and another of the moon and another glory of the star. And one star differs in another from glory. As you look at the stars, some are brighter and you know different colors. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. The distinction between it is the body that's planted now dies. The body that's resurrection is unlike anything that's planted. How does God work that out? I don't know. But it's a different body. Okay? It is so in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-living spirit. Adam gave us physical life. Christ gave us spiritual life. Adam gave us a physical body. Christ is going to give us a spiritual body. But it's going to be a physical body nevertheless. It's going to be, there's going to be a substance to it. Okay? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spirit. You don't get the spiritual, then the natural. You get the natural, then the spirit. The first man was made of, was of earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. How did Christ form Adam out of the dust of the earth? What is our, our resurrection body formed of? Spiritual substance. It doesn't explain it. We'll know when we get to heaven what that all is. But it's, it's a different substance. It doesn't matter. You're going to get a different body. As was the man of dust, so also those who are made of dust. And as the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Our body is going to be a heavenly body like Christ. It's not like the physical body we have now. It's different. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood, what's that referring to? Okay, what process drives your physical body? Blood. And it's it's what it's you have to eat. There's there's a decay. There's a there's a chemical process that drives our physical body. All right. And there are certain things that our physical body needs or we die. If you don't have air, you're dead. If you don't have food in a particular amount of time, you're dead. If you don't have water in a certain amount of time, you're dead. OK. That's a corruption. It's a corruptible body. What's it mean by corruption? It is subject to decay. But what's the new body like? It's incorruptible. It can't, it's not subject to decay. What is it like? I don't know. But it's not like the flesh and blood body we have now that is subject to decay. It is an incorruptible body. A body that is suited for heaven. 
but I will recognize you. I'll recognize. I'll be able to pick John out. He'll pick me out. I might look different, but I'll know you. Yeah. I, I won't wear glasses, and I will have a full head of hair. What All about right. the handicapped people? Handicap? They're delivered. They're resurrected. They get a physical, they get a, a perfect no body. Yeah. Body. Be, you're not going to go through heaven in a wheelchair. That's what I don't think about. Yeah. You're not going to go through heaven in a wheelchair. You're not gonna, if you're deaf now, you're not going to be deaf in heaven. I mean, we're going to be perfect. You know, we're going to be fully perfect. All right? And we'll be recognizable. We'll be able to recognize people and pick them out. Well, how do you know that? Well, um, Peter could figure out who Moses and Elijah were, and I don't think they wore name tags. All right. They were in re They were probably in their spirit body. That's a toughie. And so people who have died already are not in any kind of unconscious state. No, they're alive. They're 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 conscious. And if you got if you died tonight and you went to heaven, you'd be able to pick them out. You'd be able to recognize them. You'd be able to know who they were. Without a physical form, there is a spiritual body the soul has that's not that's immaterial, but it's a body nevertheless. Okay. You know the Bible doesn't give us all those details. I wish it would it did, but it doesn't. And then he says here, um, I tell you a mystery. What's a mystery? Well, it's it's was hidden. Now I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you it. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some people say that's the sign over the over the nursery in the church. You know, um, what's the idea of sleep? There, the idea of sleep for the believer is when you die, your body goes to sleep. It's going to wait till the resurrection. You're conscious, but your body is asleep. Okay. You're conscious. Yeah. If you died right now, your body would be buried, but you would be in the presence of God enjoying. So you don't have a sleep. Period. No. So it's called, and the reason it's a, it's a euphemism. Okay. What's a euphemism? Um, it's a nice way of saying a bad thing. <laughs> you're dead, but really, for the believer, your body is asleep because you're going to get a new one. No. Paul said, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I would rather depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And what do you see in Revelation? The souls of them who were martyred. Yeah. Now, were they sleeping under the altar? No, they weren't. They were, they were, they were conscious. Yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. No, not believe in soul sleep. It's called soul sleep. Where you die and the next thing you remember is you're resurrected. No, if you die, you go to the presence of God. What did Christ tell the, tell the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Now, is, is a guy going to be sleeping in paradise? No. The, the resurrection, uh, the parable of uh, Lazarus and the rich man. When the rich man died, what was he? Was he sound asleep until he was resurrected to be cast in the lake of fire? No, he's in conscious torment. And who did he see over in paradise? Lazarus with who? And they were not sleeping. They were conversing, talking. Yeah. Um, no, there's no such thing as soul sleep. He says in verse 50, we all, all be changed. What's the idea of being changed? Metamorphose. Our flesh, this body that I have now is not suited to heaven. Because it has to eat. It has to sleep. 
It has to have food, water, things like that, or it dies. It's not suited for the presence of God. But I will, this will be transformed somehow into a body that's suited for heaven. God will create a body for me suited for the eternal state of existence. And when he comes again, and if I'm alive, I'm going to be transformed. If I'm dead, I'm going to be given a resurrected body. All right. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. The dead are raised to an incorruptible body. We are going to be changed into an incorruptible body. For this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So this corruptible is put on incorruption, and the mortal put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? What's the victory of death? What's his victory? It's sin. But I'm going to have a glorified body that will never again be subject to sin, decay, death. It will be incorruptible. It will, I will not be able to be killed. I won't be able to screw it up. That's the thing I like so much about heaven. I'm not going to be able to mess it up. You know, if, if, if eternal state came and God said, okay, well, I'm glad you're out here, but we just got one rule. There's this one tree you need to stay away from. You know, before long, having to be empty again, right? Mm -hmm. If it was up to us, we're not going to be able to mess it up. We're going to be incorrupt. And so death is swallowed up in victory. I will never have to worry about dying again. I'll have an incorruptible body. The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin and the law. But thanks be to God who gives us a victory through Jesus Christ. My victory over death is through Christ. I will never be subject to the sting of sin, the, the sting of death, which is sin. Um, it will never have victory over me. Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. All the stuff that you go through, all the persecutions, all the grief, all the trials, all the pain of life is worth it because what's going to happen someday? You're going to be given a resurrected body to enjoy heaven for eternity. It will never die, never be subject to decay, Never fail. There will be no doctors in heaven, no lawyers, no tax collectors. <laughs> there will be no need for any of that because we will be perfect and corruptible. And that's what makes Christianity all worth it. Why, why does Paul face the garbage of life? Because someday there's a grand payoff. Because someday it will be worth it all. And when we receive our glorified bodies... We'll be complete. No more death. No more decay. Any, any questions on this? I've got 10 minutes to go through chapter 16. Paul changed up. Now concerning the collection for the saints. What was this collection for? Well, Paul was going to take this money back where? Why? There was a famine going on. And and what better way to to bring the Jews and Gentiles together than for the Gentile believers to contribute to the necessity of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem? And Paul took a large offering back with him to Jerusalem to feed and help them in their time of trouble. And he says, if I've given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must. What's the churches of Galatia are what? Iconium? Derby. Derby, Lystra, and Pisidia, right? 
That's Galatia. It's a province. So must you do also. Here's, the, here's, here's how you take a collection. On the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside some, something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. Now, verse 2 tells you what you give. Now, there's a whole big argument on this, because most, what do most preachers say? 10%. 10 percent off the top. If you don't give 10 percent, you're out of the will of God. And there's a there's a radio program called Money Matters where every time I turn around, they're talking about tithing. And I just want to reach through the radio and slap him, but I wouldn't do that. Um, this tithe, this under, we don't have a time to fully to explore this subject. I'm writing a paper on it, so it'll appear on my website one of these days. Tithing was Old Testament tax. It was a tax for Israel. And it was used to, to support the priesthood, to support the temple, to support the feast days. It was required giving. It was not optional. You were required to give 10% because one-twelfth of your population was not allowed to own land and till the ground, the Levites. Their job was to you know, maintain the temple. They had to be supported. How were they supported? Through the offerings of the people, the giving. All right? That was tax. Don't let them say, well, Abraham gave 10%. On one occasion, on one day, he gave a tenth of the top of the heap. There's no indication he came back the next year and gave Melchizedek another 10%. All right, that was a one-time deal that he gave there. He was perfectly valid to do that. He could give whatever he wanted. All right, so th so the upshot, and then they say, well, what about the you know the the Malachi three ten passage, where you've you've kept back your tithes? Notice what it is, tithes, because in the Old Testament you gave ten percent for the priesthood, ten percent to support the feast days, and another ten percent every three years for the support of the poor and widows. So you gave your tithes in the Old Testament, 23 and a third percent of your income was given for taxation. That was your tithes. And what he's saying in Malachi is, is in, under the Old Testament economy with the temple in, in, in play, as a Jew, you were required to give your offerings, and they weren't doing that. And that was a problem, and that's why you have the Malachi 3 passage talking about that. But this is the New Testament Definition of giving. What do you give? Okay. Your best. Your best. What else do you give? The guidelines for giving. What do you give in the New Testament? What do you give? How much do you give? What you right. You give what you know is right. What you can without you give what you know is right. You give what you want to give. You give what you want to give. Now, now let's understand. Tithes do not come in at all. What, is it, what do you want to give God? If God showed, if Christ showed up right now, and he asked him, said, uh, "How much should I give my offering Sunday?" What would he say? What would he say? What do you think he'd say? You'd say, uh, put what you want in. Well, how much is that? Well, how much do you want to give me? Yeah, amount. What's the amount? Well, how much do you want to give me? Because what does that make you do? Makes you think about it. Right? And what's it say? As God has prospered you. 
you give consistently on the first day of the week. You give what God has laid on your heart to give. And we're going to talk about this later in Corinthians. Second Corinthians, we'll come back and visit this whole thing of giving. But you give what God lays on your heart to give. For some of us, it may be 90% of our income. For some of us, the best we could do is 2%. That's all we can give. I think you should give, if you want to ask me, I had to write an answer on this. Um, how much should you give God? You should give God what he laid on your heart to give. You should give it willingly, cheerfully. You should also give, I think, sacrificially. What do I mean by that? It should cost you something. Does your giving cost you something? All right. Now, let's stop and think about this. Let's say uh, you're Bill Gates and you make uh, 20 billion a year. What's 10 percent? What's 10 percent of 20 billion? Two billion dollars. Right. How much do you have left? All right. Now, can you live on 18 billion dollars? Do you realize you realize that most people could not spend 18 billion dollars? All right. You can't spend it. In other words, he makes money faster than he can spend it. All right. The whole point is you can live pretty well on 18 billion dollars. Now, did it cost you anything to give two billion? No. In the grand scheme of things, it didn't cost you. You know, but, you, you probably you probably don't even notice that. But the thing of it is, even if he gave the church the two billion, his other giving is sent to other organizations. To me, that's the same. Yeah. The, the whole He's point. Others, yeah. Like he do. Uh, you know, programs and stuff. So that's still giving. Yeah. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that when you when you run when you understand this, whenever you reduce a relationship to a set of rules, what does that say about the relationship? Oh. You need to err on the side of grace. Right? All right. You err on the side of grace. But, but let me ask a question. If I come over to your house, if I come over to your house, Brenda, how do I do that? Do I just walk in the door and open the fridge and pop a cold one and sit down in front and turn the TV on and watch a television show? I think so. Why not? Because you're not allowed. <laughs> well, the whole point is that th there's a formality yeah. with our relationship. All right. But now when I go to my house, Donna says nothing at all about me walking in and, you know, grabbing a Pepsi and sitting down and watching TV or because we have a relationship, right? The, the the closer the relationship, the less formal the rules, right? So if you reduced your giving to God to a mathematical formula, what does that tell you about your relationship? It's a formal relationship. Your heart doesn't drive it. It's a, okay, you know, 10%, all right, whatever, you know. Yeah. And that's not what does God want that? No, he doesn't want that. God wants you to give him because Tim, because you want to give to him. Right? Because you, Graham, it gives you joy to give to him. And the closer and deeper you are to God, the more you're going to give him. All right? And you're not going to worry about the 10% or 5% or 20% or whatever. You're going to give out of a heart of gratitude and love. And it's going to cost you something. If you're making twenty billion a year and you give God two billion, there's no cost to you, because you can still live pretty well on eighteen billion. But if you're making ten thousand dollars a year and you give the Lord two thousand dollars, that's a big hit.
there's a cost. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what does it cost us to give to God? What are, what are, what are you giving up in order to give? And if you look at your life saying, well, I'm not really giving up anything, and I give God 10% and really not miss it, are you really giving to God? And I like what it says in, in, in um, I can't remember the exact passage, but remember when David brought the ark into the town and he was going to make a sacrifice? And the guy said, well, here, take my oxen. And Dave said, no, I'm going to pay you for it. He said, no, 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 take them. Said, Dave said, I'm not going to offer anything to God that didn't cost me something. All right. What's it cost you to give to the Lord? You should give to that point, I think, wherever that point hits on your on your income scale and whatever, till it's going to cost you where you say, okay, I can either give to the church or I can go watch the Indians game this week. I can't do both. What's it cost? Now, in my case, I could care less about the Indians. But the whole point, it's going to cost you something. It's going to, it's going to be a cost to you to give to God rather than do something else. Well, why do the ministers don't talk about the 23 and the 30? Because they don't know the scriptures. And because it's much easier to give a rule than it is to give a relationship. It's a whole lot easier to give a person a mathematical percentage than it is to look them in the eye and say, how much do you love God and what do you want to give him? That's the tough question. Because because it's a because it's a guilt trip. They can place a guilt trip on people. Yeah. And, and see, don't get me wrong. Don't don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. All right. But there are some people that cannot give God 10 percent because for them to do that means that they are not going to be able to feed their families. Things like that. I mean, God, God wants you to sacrifice. But he don't want you to die. All right. I mean, there, there's a certain point. God expects, for example, God expects you to pay your your debts. Now, if you say, okay, I can either give my tithe to the church or I can pay my house payment so I don't default on my house payment, what does God want you to do? Pay your house payment. Why? Now, now you say, well, is there a Bible verse on that, Schaefer? You got any Bible? Yeah, I do got a Bible passage on that. Remember the widow, widow with Elijah that was going to um, bake? You know, said, well, I got a little bit of oil, a little bit of grain here, and we're going to bake a cake, eat it, and then we're going to die. What, what, did, what did Elijah tell her to do? Go borrow every jar in town, right? And what did she do? She filled all the, and she, and what did he when he when he got when she got all the jars filled? What did he tell her to do with them? And then when they got boiling, what did he tell them to do? What did he tell her to do with it? And then what did he tell her to do with the money? Now now make sure you go down and give ten percent to the temple. What did he tell her to do? Pay off your debts. Now, now, please understand. You need to give. You need to give to the Lord. Don't don't say, "Well, I'm going to pay my debts instead of give to the church." No. If you got if your debts are too big, you need to deal with your debts. You need to get your spending under control so you can give. All right. You don't go go hide under the excuse. Well, I got I got to make my boat pay payment, my second house payment, so I can't give to the church. No. You need to get rid of the boat and the second house. All right, or whatever it is. But the point is, God's always going to be looking at what is in your heart. Why are you doing this? That's always the issue to God. God is not. God is much more interested in why you do something than what you're doing. 
obligation. It's an obligation. And it was an obligation in the Old Testament. There's no doubt about that. Well, that's what some say. What about Jesus say more? She gave everything, right? Yeah, yeah. That's why Jesus Yeah, because God, understand, folks, God is looking at your heart. Why are you doing this? It's not the amount. It's why are you doing it? Now, if if there was a 10%, what would we find in the New Testament? What would Paul have told them? Now, make sure you got your 10% ready when I come in there. He didn't. He said, as God has prospered you. There were people in that day that had nothing left over. And they literally had to choose, do I eat or do I give money? I mean, that was the choice. And Paul says, what does God want you to do? God's looking at your heart. Take care of your family. Feed your family and get to the point where you can give, but don't live under this, this guilt trip that if you're managing your money well and you, you're only able to give 5% to the Lord, that somehow you know he's, he's got an account book up there and he's putting some red marks next to your name. How do you, I mean, have you taught that in the church? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Because because when I'm living, I'm living under a higher standard. Because what standard am I living under? If God has really prospered me, should I be giving him just ten? Probably a whole lot more, right? Because God's looking at your heart. Why are you doing this? And and I think another thing is a lot of us could probably give more than we really do. If we really thought about it, and you might you might have to say, well, do I buy a new car? Do I I give the money to the church? Maybe I'll buy a less expensive car. Maybe I'll live in a smaller house. Maybe I'll not go out and eat dinner four times a week. What is it costing you to give? If you're looking at your life and saying my lifestyle is not impacted at all by what I give, you're probably not giving enough. One of the things that that I always hear people say about the tithe is that if you give the first you know, the first of your income, then it's like a step of faith that God will take care of your needs, you know, for that. God honors your giving heart. But that that is, my I, I heard that said. My problem is you need to give whatever God has laid on your heart, whatever that amount is. But I, I've known churches where, you know, like she says, where they want your W-2 form where you've got people that are actually sacrificing necessities. I'm not talking about wants. I'm not talking about color TVs and, and cable television. I'm talking about food, medical care, clothing. Um, you think God wants that? I mean, I remember listening to Larry Burkett one time. A, a lady called in. She was a single mom. And she called in. And she says, you know, I, you know I, my car needs tires desperately. I, they're bald. They're, they're really dangerous for me to drive on them. I need my car, but I can't buy tithes and give my tithe to the church this month, what should I do? And I remember Burkett saying, give your tithe to the church and let them know you need tires. And part of me wanted to reach to the radio and grab him by the throat and slap him and saying, do you really think that's what God... God wants you to give, but does God want you to, you know, die <laughs> to make sure you give your tithe to the church? That's legalism, folks. That's not what God's after. And see, another thing is, too, is like, I know people who have, like, handicapped children and stuff, and they cannot work because they have to take care of these children. And the church is beating them up about their 10% when actually that's not their money. 
Yeah. If you if I can't work and I got an income from a handicapped child, and that money and that money is is to take care of the house. Then that money is to take care of that handicapped child. The child can't speak. So what right. am I supposed to do? Ignore the pastor who's t telling you to do that and find another church. God, if you don't get anything, if you don't get anything out of out of what I what I've been trying to say, understand this: God is looking at your heart. Why are you doing this? And that's what he's asking. If you ask God, how much should I give you? He's going to look you back and say, what do you want to give me? And that makes you stop and think. So we should just give God our leftovers. No. I'd rather put my, I should put my house and my car note and all that before. You should, you should manage your money so that you can pay your bills and give God a, and I, I believe it should be a significant amount. You know, ten bucks a week is, is not does not cut it. All right, but I, you know, one, one of the one of the problems is that, that people Christians get themselves so much in debt that they can't give. That's not biblical either. That's that's invalid biblically. But if you're managing your money well, and the best you can do because of circumstances or illnesses or, or stuff is, is give God 5%. That's the best you can do. You want to give him more. God says, give me what you want. He's not going to sit there with an accounting book, you know, marking down what you owe him. Because now it's not a relationship. It is a formal thing. And we're out of time. I'm sorry. Let's close in prayer. Father, thanks for this time and for being here and being able to talk about this. Help us to think about what we've learned and help us to apply it to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.